This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Welcome to the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host, as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is Professor Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, everybody. Hello, Edward. Uh, on tonight's show, we're going to be talking about Park Chan Wook's twist on the vampire mythos with First. But before we get into that, it's obviously time to ask what you've been watching. And I don't know about yourself, if you've had a chance to watch any Asian cinema since the last show. For myself, I've been over doing the coverage for E3 for ThatMountain.com and Game Warp, uh, which you can obviously check out uh, via the ThatMountain.com podcast feed. We've got that and we've got the write-ups over there. So that's what I've been doing, basically. Uh, so it's left very little time to actually watch much this month, although I have got like a very nice stack of stuff that I want to watch, such as like Wolf Guy and the Battles Throughout Honor and Humanity saga, which is over on Shudder and my subscription runs out on the 30th so I'm basically trying to cram in as much of the subs as I can so I don't have to renew it um, so very much looking forward to seeing some of the Chiba's Wolf Guy because I've heard it's pretty nuts and with the Joe Bob Briggs I don't know if, if it's commentary or interruptions how you view these things uh, but his additional input I think should hopefully give us some interesting trivia for the next for when we record next so fingers crossed um so I actually have once have been watching some stuff. <laughs> um, I, I um, one thing I haven't watched, but I pick, I pick up. I got um, the Criterion Collection of the Lone Wolf and Club movie, Lone Wolf and Club, Lone Wolf and Cub movies. Yeah. Um, I think we talked about them before, but they were on Amazon at a pretty cheap price, and I thought, you know what, it's time. <laughs> so uh, I went Did for you... that, but that's going to be an investment of time, of course. Have they actually sent them to you? Because, I mean, we all know what happened with the Satoichi box sets. We all saw that wonderful price, got overexcited, and they was like, no, we're not sending them to you. No, definitely got them. It's got six films on it. It looks good. (laughs) And have you seen any of the Baby I've seen a couple of them, yeah. Um, uh, River Sticks I reviewed for Eastern Kicks. Yep. Um, Some, maybe a year ago, probably when uh, when this set came out. And I've had them... As, as review copies for a while, but the you know images off Vimeo. But this was nice to, to actually get the set, and it goes nicely with some of the other sets we don't like to talk about. Um, but I haven't watched that yet. But what I have watched is, um, bizarrely, um, an Indonesian superhero film <laughs> called Valentine, um, which I don't really know why I decided to watch it. I just... I like, I like strange things from strange places. I like superhero films, so I thought I'd give this a go. Um, it's kind of interesting. Um, it turns out in Indonesia there's a there's a comic book company um, that are very popular. Um, all looks very Marvel comics-y to me, like modern-day Marvel comics to me. But okay. um, they decided to... Well, they were making an attempt to making films of, of their properties. Um, the first one to come out was one called Valentine, um, which is sort of um, it's sort of a female martial artist girl that's driven by various tragedies in her life, um, and it's got sort of CW TV show production qualities, so it's not too shabby. Um, with uh, 
sort of Japanese Saturday morning show quality acting in it. Mm. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's entertaining. Um, it actually is quite dark. Um, most superheroes have a tragedy in their past if they follow the Marvel style. This one decides to have two or three and add another one three quarters <laughs> of the way through the film. Um, but like I say, it, the quality was was reasonable, was very watchable, um, and quite clearly at the end they were getting ready for the second film, although I don't see that uh, with with another property. But I don't see that's come out. This film's sat in limbo for a couple of years before getting some kind of international release. But uh, it's per- it's it's perfectly serviceable, but when you think of the big pile of really good films I haven't got round to watching, then it's a bit shameful on my part. <laughs> Spent time with that, but that's what I tend to do. It's always interesting when you see like these little superhero movies turn up from forgotten places of the globe. I know there's a uh, Jason Fleming headed um, sort of like superhero sort of movie that's over in Russia, I believe it's from. Um, I know the Bristol Bad Bad Film Club were sh- had it on their Facebook feed, and it's it's weird because you're watching it and it's like, wow, that's Jason Fleming who can't get the leading man role here, but if he goes to Russia. Uh, they'll overdub him and let him play the lead man and it had an Arnold Schwarzenegger cameo in it as well which it was just absolutely bizarre and, it, and I really kind of wanted to see it because it had that like wonderful uh, European sort of CGI that we've seen in things such as like the Guardians and the uh, Nightwatch and Daywatch films where it it just uh, looked really kind of polished really kind of nice and uh, I was really hoping that it would be something that would filter across but as yet I've not been able to find any sort of English dub or uh, English sub for it so but yeah i mean if if you go look at things um when i look at sites such as like flight flight sites and movie nights with bubble wee and some of the obscure like foreign superhero movies that he finds come up I and mean, we've all heard of obviously like turkish um turkish superman we've seen japanese spider-man or sudaman um as it was known which is uh it's a really fun TV series, and if you can get hold of the box set, because it is a little hard to get hold of here in the UK. So, if you've got the right connections there, um, the Japanese Spider-Man series is really cool because it combines like these elements of like Carmen Rider and Power Rangers into it. So, you've got Spider-Man who rides around on a motorcycle, and he's got like a giant road uh, robot uh, called Lena Part. I mean, is, is this a new thing for you? You're just going to hunt down like foreign superhero movies now? Uh, uh no, I don't think so. <laughs> um... Um, I don't know, just 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 appealed. I do like I, said, I do like a superhero. I know about the Russian films you're talking about, but to be honest with you, I'm a bit superheroed out. Full stop. Now with um, we've still got this new Spider-Man film coming, but after that, I'm hoping for a bit of a rest. Um, I know it's it. Uh, there's some, <laughs> isn't there like some child supervillain movie called Brightburn or something that's ah uh, yes, come out nowhere. Um, yeah, I've actually. Oh, I might have a copy of that. That's something I want to watch. So it's sort of um, it's done by um, James Gunn's cousin or something like that, and James <laughs> Gunn's a producer on it. So it's got some fairly mixed reviews, but I'll give it a go. Evil Superman's always one for me. Definitely. Um, what else did I pick up? I also picked up um, Hirokazu Koryada's Third Murder, um, which I haven't got round to watching yet, but I got that. In a two for one at HMV yesterday, so I'll be picking that up soon. Um, and then, of course, I have this month been watching um, lots of Czechoslovakian films for my other podcast, um, which actually became a bit of a challenge because normally I pick two films 
and this time I had too many films, so yeah. I've, I've watched more films than the films I talked about, but it gave me a chance to talk about one of my all-time favourite directors, um, the surrealist Jan Schwenkmeyer. Um, so I had a look at his little Otik film, but it also made me re-watch Alice and Faust and other films of his, which I love. Um, and, yeah, had a little look of Milos Forman's old back catalogue as well. So basically I've got a ton of Czechoslovakian films, so I'm now... Um, now I think I'm going to have to do a second episode on that at some point. Cool. Um, and obviously, there's Greer Rambling's World Tour. And Indeed. We do, if you check our Facebook feed um, and Twitter feed, we do for the links up on there as well. Or, you know, just look for Greer Rambling's World Tour. It uh, should come straight up there. It should be the only thing coming up in that title, yes. <laughs> <laughs> as for the releases side of things, there's been a few interesting bits and pieces that have been released for the streaming services. Uh, first up, Funimation have released the entirety of Samurai Shampoo, uh, which you can find now for free on YouTube. It is currently only the sub version, um, so if you want the dub version, you're still going to have to pay for that. Uh, but no, Samurai Shampoo is really, really cool. It's a pop samurai anime with a hip-hop soundtrack, and some, some of the characters also have like a hip-hop sort of influence to them. But basically, you've got these younger who's searching for a samurai who smells of sunflowers and she recruits these two rival samurai who decide to put their differences aside to help her on this quest um only deciding that once they found this samurai that they're then going to fulfill their debt so destiny that they believe to face each other in battle really cool show um some really stunning animation and some really interesting episodes in there um the, well, on the anime front, Neon Genesis Evangelion, the complete run, plus the movies, is now available finally on Netflix. Uh, if you're not familiar with the show, it is highly regarded as one of the big anime series of all time and has received rave critical reviews uh, from many people. I know the guys over at Blade Looking Thieves really love it and they did. If you go way back into the archive, way back to episode one, uh, they did like, I think it was about a three hour episode just talking about uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is well worth checking out. But for myself, when I watched it back when it was on the tapes and you were paying like, <laughs> paying the extraordinary, extortionate amounts just for like one episode, um, it's, uh, it never really, really sat with me. And over the years, all I've heard is that people rave and rave on about how great the show is. But I never really liked the design of the aliens or the angels as they're known. Um, and I didn't like how the mecha elements worked in it. But, you know, I'm willing to go back and look at it now as a older and, you know, arguably wiser viewer and see if it makes any difference. I don't know about yourself, Stephen. I mean, did you ever watch Evangelion when it came through? Or Well, what you've done is you solved one of the great mysteries of my life is how to pronounce Evangelion. Okay. <laughs> I never, I, it's, it's, it's a name that's been around since I can remember um, in terms of uh, anime. And I always wonder how you pronounce that because I'd have had a different, I'd have had a softer G myself. Anyway, but I'm sure you're right. Um, uh, no, I've never watched it. I'm not an anime guy. I do like the idea of Mecha yeah. a lot. Um, but it's one of those... Oh, it's one of those shows that's just too... There's too much. I wouldn't even know where to start because there's not just the show, is there? There's multiple iterations and OVAs and 
alternate versions and reboots <laughs> and I just you know I, I know I could probably stick with the is it 25 episodes it's yes yeah, it's, it's 25 episode run and they obviously did the movies which was their way of correcting the the ending which it's kind of legendary for the fact that they they kind of ran out of money and they they had to try and find a way to to put it out so they the, the creator was never really happy with it and I know the fans were certainly not happy with, with how it ended so they released this trilogy of films the final one is due out soon uh, which basically it's from what I, from what I gather it basically re-jiggers the story so it's kind of like when you watch uh, Dragon Ball GT uh, which basically takes the original series and just basically retells it in a more sort of uh, streamlined format and just cuts out a, a load so I think always the best way with these is just watch the original series and then go on to the movies I think that's always the best approach and oh I just well we've obviously got like numerous Gundam series sort of like floats around on both like Netflix and Crunchyroll the one I really want is just Pilotball and while the films are you can get the films really easy the series itself seems to be the one of these most elusive things and we just get bits and pieces for it and it's just really annoying that when all I want to, the series I always wanted um is that is that one just purely because it's it's a giant mecha and it's just you know giant mecha without all the heavy gumph um but yeah I mean if you if you are obviously wanting to get into giant mecha I mean definitely hunt down either the Platinum Ball one movie or check out giant robot that's a really fun series as well that sounds like that, that giant robot sounds like uh, giant robot just, do, just does what it says on the tin. Yeah. I believe there's a, a live action version which is uh, Johnny Sasko and his amazing flying robot. Right. Um, I'm sure Augustine Rigone would probably correct me on that one, but um, yeah, the the show itself is it comes across like a Saturday morning like kids cartoon uh, where you got this this boy and he's got like a giant robot with for some reason it's like egyptian themed so it's got like a pharaoh's head on it um and he controls it with like wrist monitor and you think oh this is a cute little saturday morning cartoon then you've got like really dark moments of like scientists being like hung off the uh bells of notre dame and (laughs) characters randomly dying it's like no this isn't for kids at all this is kind of dark so but yeah maybe i'll sit down have you watch that one at some point at gunpoint, yeah. yeah. Oh, I just always feel bad that I've never watched any of this stuff, and I, I've almost dug myself into a position of I'm not going to watch any anime now, and it's, that's not that's not the case at all. It's, is it because of the generation you are, Stephen, that you didn't come up in like like a Xenials where we came up in like anime was like this big pop culture thing? I think I I think you're right. I'm a you know, spoilers, a little bit older than Richard. <laughs> and um, I I guess, yes, I think the whole... I, I was certainly around when Akira hit it big and aware of other things. Uh, what was that awful thing with the rape monster demon thing? Oh, um, uh, and Yeah, so I was aware of those things. But I think... So in my VHS days, shall we say. Yeah. Um, but I think my interests had moved elsewhere. And whilst I was still liking odd, obscure cult stuff, I was more interested in, I don't know, strange nun films from Spain or something like that. And so I maybe missed it. And I now, you know, I've tried, certainly with manga. Um, I've tried to pick it up. 
and try to enjoy it, but yeah. I find the pacing alien to me. Um, obviously, I've reviewed a lot of films, which are manga and anime live-action adaptations, and always the pacing doesn't match how I understand either reading a comic book or watching a film, um, which is why so many of them are successful TV shows, because it's, it's just a different beat yeah. to the story. And I just think I'm... I'm not equipped necessarily to enjoy that, if that makes sense. Okay. I think I probably, I think I probably did. I think I probably did miss by five years it being essential to me. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I've sort of stepped in and out of over the years. I mean, obviously, back in like the anime boom, and we have things like Akira and Ghost in the Shell coming out, and were manga and Tim were like really at the sort of like the forefront of just like you know these sort of like dangerous cartoons they have this sort of real sort of element of danger to them Ben, because you're going to see like sex and violence and uh, like really sort of like heavy metal-esque sci-fi sort of stories and I think this was, this was what sort of appealed to the kids. you weren't sure when you were supposed to be watching these things much like how she justified to people you're watching like violent Japanese cartoons and it was really sort of back when I got into like college that like, I got back into it again and started like picking up tapes and I think this has also helped the fact that Amazon had just started to find its ground and so you could order all, all these tapes because living in Cornwall you had to go in an hour to the train to go to your local Virgin Megastore which you'd find maybe like volume 2 when you didn't and when you really wanted like volume 1 of stuff and it was just an absolute pain in the ass so Amazon really helped a lot with the old uh, anime collection so but. Yeah, I I do find it interesting, you know, Evangelion is, like as you say, on Netflix UK now. Mm. Um, um, and we've spoken before about streaming services, um, but there are obviously things like Crunchyroll and amongst others which have, have kind of cornered that market. Um, I've seen Netflix sort of try and do their own original stuff, like the um, Godzilla stuff, but it's kind of interesting that they're picking up sort of classic properties like this there's got to be a market for it the market in the states i fully understand it's um you know it's large uh, asian culture in terms of korean music and japanese animation is really embedded not just in the counterculture but just in the normal culture you know average kids might watch or watch anime or or read manga whereas here i still think it's um it's still it's still for the for the cool kids, yeah. <laughs> um, and which is why it's interesting. It's on Netflix, and I think Netflix is you know we can all see where Netflix is going, and it's about its own content, and then backing that up with yeah, they're doing they're older certainly stuff. Signing, yeah, they're signing like a lot of anime properties. I mean, they sign they um, they picked up High Score Girl. And as you said, they're doing like Castlevania. They're doing the Godzilla movies. So, yeah, it's they're clearly they clearly know there's a market there for for anime and manga. And it is funny now when I see like the millennial kids, and it's sort of like the hip thing to be into anime. When and I tell you now, when I was coming up, it was not a hip thing to be into anime at all. Um, it was very much that that sort of niche thing for sweaties and perverts i think was was viewed as the clientele <laughs> i don't remember there being many sort of like girls into into anime or if they were they weren't they weren't missing it to us so 
No, whereas now I look at my daughter's friends, my youngest daughter's friends, loads of them are into anime, and you know, it actually the mostly are girls that are into it. So I think I think the storylines um, and the fact that you can invest hours and hours and hours into it, and some of it's on YouTube, yeah, is 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 very appealing to them. It's also a greater range now. We never had this the range that we have now. I mean, there's there's anime of all kinds out there so it's a lot easier to get into it just because of the sheer range of anime that is out there um and that's why i'm glad that you've got services like crunchyroll and you've got like funimation because collecting anime first of all is a pain in the ass because it just takes up all your shelves so you send it with like whole bookcases just of one show um so to have streaming services means that you've got it all to hand and you can just dip in and out of what you need and it just it's just so much easier it's a better way of doing anime than trying to, you know, collect it. And especially when you look at the prices you were being charged per tape and you would get like three episodes. And something like Evangelion, which is like 26 episodes, it really adds up. It does. Yeah, just, 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 just the physical media alone. For something which is quite disposable, because there's so much of it. So I, I don't know, you know if people would go back and rewatch this again and again and again i imagine it's a con it's like a shark who is moving forward with it and therefore how do you store i mean if i just look at my dvd and my cd and my games collection <laughs> i don't know how i'd cope if i also collected <laughs> collected multiple series of anime absolutely yeah also more randomly on the releases we got twins effect 2 being added to netflix they were apparently very happy about this as they included it very proudly in the coming soon section well clearly we've got somebody who's um <laughs> a fan of the show my god twins effect 2 oh geez that is possibly the worst film i've ever seen <laughs> that's a real glowing recommendation there going forward um if anyone ever goes to my website guenoramblings.wordpress.com and search for Twins Effect 2 and search for my review of that they will see it is just um, it's just the Latin words that people use for typesetting (laughs) (laughs) because that makes as much sense as that movie did (laughs) oh my god awful whereas the third movie in the series isn't bad but um, oh god worst worst sequel ever okay um, did you get a chance to get out and see Godzilla King of the Monsters since the last episode? I know that I had all these great plans that all fell through, so I've yet to see it, but I've seen every sort of like uh, misguided attempt to to try and analyse it. And it's funny when I see like Forbes, who I thought were a money magazine. I didn't think they had anything to do with films, but apparently they do. Going on that you can't have two hours of just monsters fighting each other, and I'm thinking we've got thirty six volumes of monsters just fighting each other. <laughs> I have to admit, I didn't get to see it. Um, best intentions and all that. Um, yeah. There was something else I went to see instead on my cinema trip, and I can't think what it is. Detective I Pikachu. Ne- I have seen Defective Detective Pikachu. <laughs> 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 and you know, like I don't like anime. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, to sit here and bash my anime taste, but you're just sneaking off to watch Detective Pikachu, eh? Detective Pikachu is bloody brilliant. <laughs> As reassuring, I'm going to see it this week. So I, I, um, I, 
Okay, so I am not into Pokemon at all, right? I might be a bit of a Nintendo boy, but Pokemon just completely passes me by. I've never played a Pokemon game. I'm aware of the visuals and stuff like that. And in my heart of hearts, and I also know about the Detective Pikachu, is it a 3DS game, isn't it? Or a, yeah. Or a, it's kind I'm of like a, Professor Layton. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of it, right? But it's not something I'm ever going to play or anything like that. And to be honest with you, I saw the trailer... And I just thought, what the hell is this nonsense? And then I kept seeing these reviews were like, we're going, well, this is the best computer game movie of all time. Now, I know... It's not a difficult field, because, I mean... I, I know. I looked in the dictionary. Low bar. Yeah. <laughs> but, actually, it's hugely entertaining. They develop a, a world which, you know, it's silly, but I could believe in. You've got people like Bill Nighy... And Ryan Reynolds completely committing to it. Um, but it's not a Ryan Reynolds film, which is what I was afraid of. So I was afraid it would all be the joke that Pikachu talks like Ryan Reynolds and would be a little bit filthy and a little bit dirty and, you know, Deadpool in yellow with a tail. But instead, yeah, he's an important part of it that makes it work. But it's not all about that. Um, and... Maybe I knew more about Pokemon than I thought I did, but I didn't feel excluded from anything in it. Yeah. So I'm sure if you're a big fan of it, you're, oh my god, it's a uh, this character, that character, brilliant, and and I hope that people are into that and into that world and that that fandom will be pleased by it as well. But yeah, I did, I did, um, despite myself going in with incredibly negative attitude, really enjoyed it. So I hope you enjoy it as well. So. And next episode, you can talk about how terrible it was. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can tell you how good the the uh, lunch I had after Detective Pikachu was. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was, it was good. But I will, um, I will still watch the Godzilla film. Um, it's had dreadful reviews, as far as I can see. But I like you. Wonder if people understand? No. What what I, what it is and what it's trying to be. I think the problem is that people you got you got these critics who are going in and they're trying to review it like like any other sort of movie. So and this is the problem when it comes to some of blockbuster fare is that you can't view review every movie by the same standard. So you can't like review a summer blockbuster and an art house movie the same. You've got to look at each movie. And look at it for the sum of its parts. And this is the problem I find with a lot of modern critics. If they're not getting on the soapbox about whatever personal politics and how they dislike the film for not fitting in with their personal politics, we get them trying to judge everything as though it's high art. And some films are not designed to be that. They are just designed to be disposable entertainment. And I've, from what I've certainly gathered, because people who are Godzilla fans have like gone and said they absolutely adored it, and then we've got a lot of critics who I assume just would prefer to write about, you know, highbrow entertainment. And have just <laughs> are, we like... go, are, we, are we going there again? <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure they've got they've got some riveting spreadsheets to show us that justify how they've come to their conclusions of uh, why they dislike this movie. And yes, they are entitled to their opinions, but I feel that. A lot of people have sort of gone in and just like not realised why people go to see a Godzilla movie. And I don't think that in-depth characterization of the human characters is really what we're going for. So, I, Yeah, I, I can honestly tell you, I couldn't tell you about 
any human characters in any previous Godzilla movie I've seen. Now, I haven't seen as many as you, but I've seen at least ten. And um, other than... No, I can't. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, I don't think I don't think it's there for. I, I I will watch it, and I resolve to watch it before the next episode. So um, we will we'll bring you a we'll bring you a review. <laughs> cool. Um, onto our count selection this for this episode. Uh, this was chosen by Stephen, and you decided to go with 2009's first, a film that, despite us both being fans of Park Chan-wook, neither of us had seen for whatever reason. Um, I know I've had the DVD for like, for ages, and it's sort of been sat in the pile. You know, and for some reason, I just never got around to watching it. It was not that I didn't want to see it. Um, certainly, being a big fan of Park Chan Wook's, be it the Vengeance trilogy, or like Joint Security Area, or even like uh, I'm a Cyborg, but I'm okay. There's been many sort of moves with uh, Park Chan Wook's career that I've really enjoyed. I mean, he's one of the few Asian directors who've come over to America and been able to craft the same sort of movies that he's making in his native career um, in the States, as we obviously saw with Stoker, which was just phenomenal a really great thriller and uh a film that you should definitely check out um whether you can you should use it as your entry point or not i'm i'm not too sure whether to to say that or not it was personally i would always say to like look at the vengeance trilogy first but you know whatever you feel more comfortable with your entry point really yeah i mean i, I i'm just like you i pre-ordered this film from yes asia or somewhere back in 2009 when it came out and I've since bought a triple DVD special Korean version from somewhere else. And I still hadn't got around to watching it. And I must have seen every other thing he's done. <laughs> um, I'm a huge fan of him, certainly as a stylist. I'm not always the biggest fan of his of his movies. But, but some of them, like Old Boy, like Lady Vengeance. You know, on, on the whole, I don't think there's any of his films I detest. The some I struggle with. Um, like the second half of of, of Lady Vengeance, um, which I think I spoke about at yeah. great length on our uh, 50 films thing. And he's also been involved in other films, which are like like Crush and Blush as a, as a, as a director. Not as a director, but as a, as a producer. So, you know, there's, there's a lot more to him than just a, just a film director. Um, so it was just a really weird thing. Because I also, I like Song Kang-ho, the the main actor in this, who's in many of my favourite Korean films. I really like Kim Ok Bin, the actress, and I like vampire films. So I just don't know. I think I was afraid of it disappointing me. And I'd rather there was this good film, a film that I thought would be good that I hadn't seen, than a film that turned out to be disappointing. I probably had too much expe- weight of expectation on it. That's the excuse I'm giving anyway. Yeah, I've got no, I've got no reason why why uh, I did put it for so long it just sort of like just sat on the side just never felt uh, compelled that I had to sort of rush out and watch it which sounds completely awful as, as well I think it's mainly because it was a vampire movie and I'm not a huge vampire fan I'm very sort of picky when it comes to my vampire movies I like my vampires feral rather than charming and I like it when they have a modern spin so things like you know Near Dark and Lost Boys those sort of uh, those are sort of like more my jam than you know, Christopher Lee and uh, Bela Gozi and people hanging oh. around drafty castles and whatnot. Oh, absolutely. No, you know, when I say I like vampire films, I, I, all sort of monster movies, I like them to be a different take or 
um, contemporary at the at the very least. Um, so not just vampire films, but like werewolf films. If if they can do something different, if they can contemporize it, um, and obviously as they're all, you know, these days uh, metaphors for something else, that's all the better. Um, yeah. So I'm interested. What did you think of it? <laughs> okay. um, if you're obviously not familiar with First, this is, as we said already, it's a vampire movie. And it follows a Catholic priest called uh, Sang Hyun, here played by Sung Kang Ho. And he volunteers at a hospital uh, providing ministry to the patients. And is very sort of respected because he's seen as a man of very true faith. Um, at the same time, his, his professional front covers for many of his sort of like deeper sort of yearnings and that had sort of like been very repressed by his role as a priest and he basically chooses to volunteer to take part in an experiment where they're trying to find a vaccine for this deadly virus called Emmanuel virus or EV and the virus basically the experiment fails and he's injected he contracts his this fatal disease and it's only via receiving a blood transfusion that he makes this miraculous recovery uh, now his followers are all keen to see this as like this great act of uh, faith and you know he's been miraculously healed but what's actually happened is he's become a vampire and the film basically follows him as he deals with not only his vampirism but also his involvement with his uh, the wife of his former school friend um, Taiju here played by Kim Ok Bin and the two of them basically come up with this plan to first of all get rid of her husband and then have to deal with the fact that she's been turned into a vampire as well although she views vampirism with a very different outlook than he does um, this is a very unique take on the vampire mythos as we're going to get into in a minute and one a film i was actually very surprised with even though it did for myself run about 20 minutes too long but uh i mean let's just get into the uh, meat and potatoes of this now and obviously as a vampire movie you kind of like hold it against all the other vampire movies that come before so while this isn't obviously a feral vampire as we saw mentioned already with things such as like lost boys and near dark um it's not quite the charming vampire of like you know dracula sort of cred and instead sort of falls in that it kind of falls in a similar sort of uh areas like let the, let uh, let me in or let the right one in for myself at least anyway yeah because uh, the, there's plenty of vampire stuff in here although with a much on the whole, a much more realistic bent. Um, so, uh, so, what's his name? Sang Hyun? Yeah, yeah. Sang Hyun. Um, you know, he, he tries to get his blood from the hospital, from the um, from the blood bags, which is actually something we saw in another, in the Twins Effect. <laughs> just remembered. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and it doesn't really... You know he's not super charming and super attractive, although it, there is an um, an animalistic side to him, which he struggles to keep under wraps. I guess it's also trying to the fact he's a Catholic priest is something that I've never seen in a vampire film outside of a comic way before. Okay, if if you know what I mean. Um, 
and I did love the the different way these two people took to their vampirism. One used it as one was almost ashamed of it, but was and struggling with it, struggling with it as a human, as a as a religious man. Whereas the other person, um, well, she embraced it and took it as an evolution um and it exposed the flaws in her character Mm. and she went from being an incredibly sympathetic character to someone who we suddenly realize has been very manipulative and basically trouble (laughs) and i enjoyed that that both characters grew in different directions even though they both i mean she she became a vampire because she'd accidentally been killed, right? So she, she she didn't quite know that she was going to become a vampire, but her embracing of it was very different to to, to Sankhyun's embracing of it. And I, I found that kind of interesting. I found it interesting, Sankhyun's, um, sort of the priest that's in charge of him, um, he embraced it as well. <laughs> that's <laughs> because... the thing, because this vampirism is not when he obviously contracts his disease it's not the sort of thing of oh you're a vampire and your focus is now on like being this creature of the night no it's sort of like seeing this oh wow this is like this miracle cure like you become a vampire and you're cured of your ill so the senior priest um wants wants to also um contract this vampire just so he can see again because he's basically he's confined to a wheelchair and he's he's blind so he believes that if he becomes a vampire then he'll be able to see and he'll be able to go and see the ocean which is like his big goal and it puts obviously sang young this this real sort of moral quandary because he's obviously still very committed to his, his faith so as you said already he's stealing uh blood packs from the hospital and he's also siphoning off like uv tubes of patients um so he's like he's like using them as a um as as like human blood banks and we find out later that he's also assisting people who want to commit suicide um and these finally all these these moral these ways which allow him to get past this moral quandary of obviously you know killing people and drinking blood because it goes against his faith well as you mentioned already when we look at his look at Ju. Um, she sees it as this very sort of freeing element. The fact she's now free, she can go and do anything. She's not bound um, and sort of like nailed down as she was in her marriage because uh, she's married to, as I said, she's married to Sang Hoon's sort of childhood friend, uh, Kang Woo, here played by Shin Ha Kyun, who sort of double trouble lives with his mother, Mrs. Ra, here played by Kim Haek Soo, who's. She's really overprotective. She not only molly cuddles her son, but also um, sort of, you know, beats her down as well. So she's like forced to constantly spend time with this guy that she has no interest in at all and has no sort of qualms of like farting at his mother, who then can like tell him, who can like give medical opinion just based on the smell of his farts. And I wasn't sure if this is like uh, the classic again, where this is sort of like fart humor that I'm. That is that it's highbrow in its native country, but been missed. I think me. we'll I think we'll struggle to see a Korean film that doesn't have some kind of scatological element to it. Uh, the, the stalls and farts seem to be of an eternal interest to the Korean people. <laughs> hey ho! Mm. Um, something I really liked about this film is that we skip all the whole vampire origin nonsense. 
So he contracts the disease, and then we skip six months ahead, I believe it is. And so that way it's not like, oh, I have to like drink blood. Oh, moral quandary. Oh, I can fly. I've got super strength. Like all the him discovering his powers and like dealing with the quandary of drinking blood, that's all skipped over. And for myself, it felt kind of refreshing because, I mean, we all know how vampires work, so we didn't really need to see it. So the fact that Parch and Wook skips over this by having like the flash forward um i mean did that bother you at all the fact that we have this unlike leaping in knowledge gaining no it was a bit confusing to start with because i hadn't quite realized that we'd skip forward in time that much but then of course we do kind of get it later on with teju's story as as she learns and we get that wonderful scene where they're sort of leaping around buildings um actually she hasn't become a vampire yet has she when he does that but we, we, we kind of, if they'd done it earlier, we'd have had the story twice. Or we wouldn't have seen Teju's embracing of it in the same way. Um, you know, you're quite right. We know what's going on here. Yeah, he can't go out in the sun. He has to drink blood. There's some advantages. We didn't, and the film's already 20 minutes too long, as you rightly say. So there was, I'm quite glad we we didn't have 15, 20 minutes of what we already know. Yeah, I found it very much like, um, I mean, just draw a blessing comparison here, uh, like with the Spider-Man um, Homecoming. The fact is it wasn't another origin story. It's like at this point we've seen how, we know how Spider-Man came to be and we know what he can do. So the fact we're skipping over that and the fact that Patrick Wood's got such confidence to trust in his audience that, you know, we all know how a vampire works, what it's, what the rules are for vampires. Um, and I would, I kind of I kind of appreciate that, and the fact that he instead spends his time focusing on the relationship between Sanghyun and Teju, which originally is still like an extramarital affair for her, as as part of his vampirism, he gets his his vigor back, and uh, he start as I said, he starts having this affair with her, which leads to some really hot sequences, some really, I don't know how how hot you felt the film, but I thought it was pretty foxy, so. I'm not sure I'm going to have this conversation with you in public, but no. yeah, no, because Patrick Wook sh- <laughs> shoots sex really good. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is for a Korean film. It's hardcore porn, frankly, um, but also that that's also because Kim Ok um, Kim Ok Bin is an astonishingly dirty, sexy woman. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we, you know, we, we're quite used to seeing these 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 Korean actresses who are basically like chase dolls, aren't they? They're all yes. impossibly attractive. But the most you're ever going to get off them is a kiss. And that's a cultural thing. And, you know, well, again, we'll reference the classic again. I mean, that that's taking it to the nth degree. Um, Kim Ok Bin is, looks like a woman who might not only have sex with you, but she'll take charge. <laughs> There's a feralness to her as an actress and as a person, which this film just takes and winds it up to 11 um and i actually i thought it's quite interesting because you're quite right you know we talked about doing films that might do vampirism in a different way well this film doesn't does it it takes the very classic ideas and says so you know how this is going spider-man homecoming is a perfect example of, of i totally agree with you that's what i loved about that movie is that you know 
yeah, we don't need to have Uncle Ben again. We get it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> great power, but great. Yeah, but my, yeah, yeah. And this film kind of does the same, but it's it does give us through actions in the film the clues that this is actually a very traditional vampire. He can't go out at night. He's got uh, that, that, that sexual element to vampirism, which is, you know, which is as old as Bram Stoker, isn't it? <laughs> um, you know, with, with um, Mina Harker, you know, the, the seductive vampire, that's there as well. But we didn't need to have that long, <laughs> agonising origin story to it. It's just there and we'll see it in actions and deed rather than exposition. Definitely so. And the thing I love as well about uh, about Teju is the fact that when she's like first introduced, she's kind of, as I said, she's a very sort of plain looking woman. And initially, I mean, as I said, while the the, the sex scenes are very intense, and I think this is the thing that so there's never really gets discussed about when we talk about Park Chan Wook's movies because we obviously talk discuss about violence and how artistic he shoots violence. Um, we always say, I mean, as I say, he makes like the most beautiful looking revenge movies ever. And certainly when we look at his films, he's certainly done sex before. When we look at, especially like Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, which has its most memorable like death sex sequence where they're signing at each other. And he obviously did The Handmaiden, which um, I've been led to believe is also rather naughty as well. Uh, but yeah, oh, the scenes God. here are so <laughs> erotically You haven't seen The Handmaiden yet, have you? No, that's that's uh, still in the pile. Oh yeah, so you'll um, you'll never look at Cunnilingus the same way again. How delightful! <laughs> if that doesn't make you want to watch it, nothing will. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as I said, I'm just not used to such sexy sequences in Asian cinema. But Patrick Wick has no qualms about shooting them, and he shoots them in a very, very interesting and engaging way. And I love the fact that actually the more that she like becomes involved with Sanghurin and suddenly when she gets her vampire powers, she suddenly like metamorphoses into this beautiful, um, seductive woman. And is it just the change is so subtle. And it, as I said, just the more that she does to get involved with Sanghurin, such as like being involved in killing her husband. And, um, as I said, just becoming a vampire, the fact that she like metamorphoses into this beautiful woman, which she obviously is. Um, if you look on her Wikipedia page, you can see that already. And um, I thought it was, just, it, was it, no, it didn't feel like it had any sort of like the cliche of like when we look at uh, like American high school movies where it's sort of like, oh, she's a geeky girl until she takes her glasses off and then she's the prom queen. Um, it had none of that to it. It just felt like this. As I said, they were watching this plain woman, and because she's become a vampire, that she suddenly becomes this like this sexy vixen of a. Uh, vampire with a penchant, penchant for like were they pliers or what were they she has like these weird clippers that she uses to punch her victims because neither her nor Sanghyun have fangs which is a really interesting element so they have to come up with more unique ways of bloodletting weren't they the, the nail clippers she would clip her husband's feet with well she did she does that and she like she shows him like doing this stabbing motion and so she's like getting muscle memory while he's asleep and uh, we see her like doing this like stabbing motion into his mouth and she's still doing it quicker and quicker she's like building the muscle memory for what you imagine would be building to her stabbing him in his sleep but mm. of course 
the other thing, which I guess um, we do spoilers here, everybody. So, because <laughs> because we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to talk about the end, aren't we? But um, but before we get to that, is of course one of the genius bits of this film is that it builds up this story of a woman who's being abused by her husband, and that the you know the priest is a priest. Forget the fact he's a vampire. Um, has fallen in love with a woman, and thinks that her husband is abusing her and that his vampiric nature leads them to basically kill the husband. Except, it turns out that's not what's happened at all. <laughs> and he hasn't been abusing her, or at least no more than normal Korean intermarital politics goes on. I thought that was fascinating. That was a real twist because, you know, that, that certainly affected the motivations of of both characters and we suddenly saw one which had given into his baser needs and the other one who was actually a manipulative shrew and maybe not as um not sympathetic a character as we've been led to believe to start with no and i mean it did obviously make me wonder why they keep mrs ray a lot around because she thinks that she goes nuts over the death of her son and so it sinks into this locked-in syndrome where she can basically scratch with one finger the couch and she can blink and that's about it. And it made me wonder, why are they keeping her around for? I I never understood why. They Surely they could get rid of her. I mean, they already got rid of her son, so why couldn't they get rid of her as well? Um, it just felt like, you know, you've killed someone and you're leaving the murder weapon on the on you. Yeah, I guess I guess Teju probably would have done, but um, Sankyun is. Um, I, I get the feeling he's a bit regretful about what he's done. He's always trying to save people, isn't he? From, I mean, yeah. saves one girl from the the eventual bloodbath in the apartment. Um, so I guess that's that. That's about him, and and also I guess he's trying to. What harm is she going to do? She's locked in. Um, it isn't until a bit later that she suddenly realises that she can. Uh, she can blink, and uh, <laughs> things things get exposed in an agonising yet quite clever sequence. It, it was. It's sort of like it. I don't know because you obviously got these characters are trying to figure out what she's trying to say, and I don't think people would in everyday life would have that much patience. Um, it's, no, I it's think like, I think we would have wheeled her away somewhere else well before she gave <laughs> exactly. it away. It's kind of like the um, the old drug baron in Breaking Bad who can only ring the bell. He's got in his wheelchair. It's the same as like just wheel him out of the room when he's becomes too much of a pain in the ass. But but the, yeah, I mean, there's many. There's a couple of like, sort of nagging questions, such as like, if you're going to be engaging in vampire activities, why do you paint every surface in your house white? Yeah, because the, the 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 apartment <laughs> does become like a like a hospital ward almost, doesn't it? It does, and, and I thought that. You know, they're building up to it. As you said, the final bloodbath at the end. We're gonna, it's going to really pay off because, you know, blood on white looks really fantastic. And we never really get the payoff. I mean, we get one sort of like splurge of uh, a blood ejected across the floor, but that's about it. And it felt like, uh, you know, it just didn't make sense. Like, why would you go to the trouble to paint your apartment white for no discernible reason? I, I mean, I understood the fact that they film the outside world during the day and they play it on a monitor in their day so it would be night for the rest of us just they've got like this sense of normality in the house 
Yeah, I guess that I guess that's what it was. But I do. Yeah, I I agree with you. I was expecting something more visual to come from that. Um, but again, it's about the practical reality of being a vampire, I suppose, which is a lot of what s- certainly Sang Hyun's story seems to be about, layered on top of a of a sort of a taboo love story. One of the sort of elements I found perhaps wrongly amusing was uh, the followers of Sang Hyun who camp outside the the monastery. Um, these aren't the most aware group, are they? I mean, they're all believing that he's going to be able to use a, you know, I don't know, maybe like faith heal these their ailments and there's a sequence where he sort of runs up to the encampment and then he does like his vampire sort of flight away and none of them sort of raise an eyebrow or question the fact that this priest has suddenly magically flew away I found that whole bit of the film that whole sort of storyline the least effective um, I think there's another film somewhere which would have been much more interesting or interested in that cult, that cult of personality yeah. and his followers. There, there weren't enough of them. Um, and he almost had to... So when we get to the conclusion of the film, he has to go and do something rather nasty to try and stop them believing in him. Um, and that almost slowed down the route to the final... Conclu- it just felt like, oh, God, there's a storyline here. We've got to finish off. And I never really felt... I mean, I... I struggled a bit with the religious side of things at all. Yeah. Because I thought that was going to be prime material for this film to talk about. And then sort of that, that, that cult forming, a religious cult forming from this could have been another different interesting film. They don't really do anything with it other than, oh, he's a priest, he shouldn't be having an affair with a woman at all, he's celibate, blah, blah, blah. But they don't do anything with it. Nothing really happens because of it. And I almost feel the fact he is a priest is is more of a means to an end than something they want to discuss themselves. So I did, yeah. I just I just felt that was an opportunity either lost or something that could have easily been removed from the story, and we just still had as still have had a good film out of it. Yeah, definitely. And with the ending, I mean, the ending was kind of dragged on as well. When we've got, I don't. Again, I'm not sure if the, if the intention were for. For Punchinwood was to basically was to show the sort of hopelessness of the situation that they they put themselves at the end, where you obviously got you got Sang Hun who's who's come to the end of his he's come up with this plan to like just put an end to everything entirely, and then you got Taiju who's obviously you know she's got all this power, she's discovered this uh, this new sense of freedom, and she's not quite ready to go. And whether it was just to basically fully established this the hopelessness of the situation that you know the inevitable is going to happen here um i mean i'm trying not to spoil anything here as best i can but yeah i mean oh spoil away i'm going to if you don't (laughs) (laughs) okay but yeah uh, the fact that we obviously got these two vampires and they're trying to we got we got sang hoon who knows he's going to get vaporized by the sunlight and then we got taiju who is trying to basically do anything she can to avoid being caught in sunlight. Yeah, so 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 basically, we get to the point where Taiju's had a, they've been exposed. A big bloodletting exercise has happened with with various potential witnesses, and Sang Hyun has realised that 
Taiju is irredeemable. He's created a monster because he literally created her. And, and he's been misled about the sort of person she is. So when she's asleep, he basically bundles into a car and drives himself, her, and um, is it Mrs. Ra? Yeah. To a desolate clifftop just as the sun is rising. And it's a vaguely comic. Um, <laughs> ex- oh, oh, whilst he goes and rapes somebody, so he gets rid of his followers, so or fake rapes, so so they don't believe in him anymore. He's basically clears everything down, clears his life down. He's ready to go. I think he's he's realised that this isn't a life he wants to live. He can't live with it. But he's got to take her down with him. So he takes her somewhere where she can't possibly escape the rays of the sun. For some reason, he's going to let Mrs. Ra watch it. So that very considerate. Yeah, well, I guess I guess he wanted her to see that the people that killed her son are being punished. But the comedy comes from uh, Teju's attempts to still hide from the sun, like gets in the boot of the car. And there's this fantastic bit. One of my favourite bits in the film is um, Sangyan just rips off the boot and throws it <laughs> miles into the sea. And it's all in the few moments she was, oh my god, how powerful he is. Um, and I thought that was just a lovely little touch. And eventually she comes to the realisation, as she calms down, as she realises what she's become, that I think there's a quite a loving, tender moment as they die. As the sun, um, they, they sort of lie in the bonnet of the car and the sun takes them away and Mrs. Ra watches it blinkingly from the back seat of the car. I don't know what's going to happen to her. She's because she ain't going to drive home, is she? But I, I thought it was quite a beautiful ending. But that, but there was sort of weird elements of comedy in there, and maybe it dragged on a bit too long. But I kind of enjoyed that bit of it. <laughs> it, it the ending, it, as I said, it felt that it was uh, it was going on a bit too long, long there. And yes, it, we got some more elements of uh, of ultraviolence in there, which is it was okay. Um, I have to say that something we didn't obviously talk about, and it was surprising we didn't talk about it during the more sweatier moments of this movie, and that's the actual scene where he changes her into the vampire. So in this case, really just to bring her back from the dead. Because he kills her and feels remorse for his actions, so he brings her back as a vampire. But the whole turning sequence, uh, I have to say it's probably one of the more hotter vampire turn sequence out because normally they're just over extra like over orchestral sort of moments and just like they're very while it's supposed to be this this moment of intense intimacy between vampire and 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 host that here it it, 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 it was just him trying to work in another sex scene it felt like and there's bloodletting and which again is very hard to do in a sexy way i mean you don't have to look at like razor blade smile to realize that you know Vampires and uh, sexiness, and especially blood uh, splatter, don't really go well together. So the fact he's able to even make like a tongue slicing seems like vaguely erotic <laughs> was kind of an achievement, really. And so real credit to uh, his work as a director, really. Um, and 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 the script. I think um, yeah, I think sensual is the word of the body isn't it it, it it's um again it's pulling at those 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 past threads of vampirism that we know about you know it's not doing um you talked about let me in and let the right one in earlier yeah. which takes a really real world approach to it yeah 
it's horrible and bloody and the people who are either vampires or are in the sway of vampires it's a horrible existence it's a dirty painful existence this one all has all that but it also kind of says hey there's some sort of cool sexy stuff about vampires as well and it kind of molds them all together i think that's where it's most successful it's a sort of modernizes it but doesn't ever forget on the tropes that it's drawing on yeah if that if that kind of makes sense it's sort of a best of both worlds and i think that's the bit where this film was most successful in in sort of in contemporizing vampirism but keeping it you know what I wouldn't mind being a vampire. I wouldn't mind being able to jump on top of a building, and I could handle. I could handle that because you get good sex out of it. And yeah, I could. Yeah, I'd do that. I'd go and steal blood from the hospital. That's what I. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it. It. Whereas in Let Me In, or Let the Right One In, those films you don't want to be a vampire. It's a pitiful fucking existence. Yeah, it's. Um... It's hard to say because obviously with 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 our lead here, him being a be a priest means that he's very sort of reserved right from the start. So we get the sort of two sides of the coin here. We get like the moral side, obviously represented by Sankhyun, and then we get like the more sort of free side. As you said, you're, you're a vampire, you're top of the food chain, and I mean she even justifies her her actions of like being like the fact that she's part of nature's plan so is it, she says like oh it's wrong for a uh, fox to eat to eat a chicken um, and this sort of like really sort of like boxes uh, where her worldview is really with things it's like people are now just food to her uh, she's no longer human she, as I said she's embraced her side she's a vampire and, and she embraced it within minutes you know <laughs> it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's uh, and I think for me as good as that was, that's where this film disappoints me. I see very little of anything being of import to him being a priest. I would have, maybe it's just me, but I would have enjoyed some, something more, more, more discussion on the metaphysical side of things. I didn't have to be literal discussions about it, but it's, a lot of it you just meant to sort of take as read. Yeah. So whilst it was good that we didn't see his origin story in in or certainly the the vampire side of his origin story, we certainly saw quite a long lead up until he got it with some really strange um English acting. Um <laughs> well it's not is it French or I don't know what's going on. There's some weird stuff where they're going, Oh yes, this this disease only affects Asians and white people. What what? <laughs> oh, yeah, but it's, it apparently only affects men as well. Yeah, because and... because his blood gets so mixed up um, with with Thai Jews, she also contracts the virus as well. So yeah, so lots of it doesn't make sense. But I think I think it doesn't make use of him being a priest, other than in in terms of the vampire story, in terms of his affair with Thai Jew and the things and the, and the, and how he falls as a person. Yeah, it's there. But in terms of the vampire story, I'm just thinking, was it needed? It's kind of cool, vampire priest. Yeah, I, mm. I get that, but I'm not sure it was. It was there, and Taiju is turned so late in the story. I mean, she's not turned to the third act. Yeah, and 
I just felt we may have spent too long in the previous two acts getting to this point of when it suddenly gets interesting and then we get that debate. And that debate's through their actions, not necessarily them sitting in a room and talking about it, which was great. But I think I like more of that or have liked it to have happened earlier. Um, so, so I kind of... I really wanted to love this film and we've spoken about lots of things which I did love. You know, it's sexy, it's interesting, it contemporises vampire films. I like the ending. Um, I love the performances. But was it worthy of the situation that it set up? I'm not so sure. Certainly so. I mean, you would certainly expect a bit more Catholic guilt there from him, especially being a priest, the fact he's now... And while there obviously are those elements of the moral quandary there, you would kind of think, feel they would be played up more than it actually is. Um, as for his role as a priest, I mean, it does remove a lot of the the barriers that would normally stop a, a normal person. It's sort of like, because he's a priest, he's a trusted member of society, so he can come and go freely. Nobody ever questions his actions, so... As said, he can go into hospital and visit patients and get access to blood and all these things that he needs. And in a way, it sort of cuts out all that sort of nonsense of like, oh, you're a vampire, so now you have to find a food source and you have to find a way to get to the food source. And it's it felt like very much like so much of this film. It just cuts out a lot of the in terms of the gunk. practicality, absolutely. Yeah. And you're absolutely um, right. And 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 it just just seems an opportunity lost because Catholicism is quite a popular religion in Korea. And I thought it would have been... Uh, we talked about this in The Wailing. And that, that that dichotomy between animism and Catholicism from the missionaries. And in, in The Wailing, they sort of managed to do something with it. In this film, it was a practical... A way of practically having a shortcut to all those questions that you quite rightly pointed out about, about access to the blood and his behaviour and the strange way he might act and the way that he is given a pass on many things. Um, but I, and, and there might be, there might be people who are more, um, more versed in, uh, in the intricacies of Catholicism that would say, ah, oh, yes, but this meant this and this meant that. And, and the senior priest actions were from John five seventeen or something. I don't know. I don't know enough about it, mm. which is possibly why I wanted a more, open and frank discussion between some of the characters about the religious elements. Yeah. Would you like to see Patrick Moore do more horror, or would you prefer him just to stay on his more dramatic side of things? I think there's a... Well, I think as we saw in sort of Stoker, there's a, there's a, there's a gothic wonderfulness to his work. Yes. <laughs> because, of his, because of his visuals. I didn't think this was his most interesting film visually. A great example is what you pointed out earlier about the flat that's painted white and it looks amazing, but then he doesn't do anything with that space. It's a practical thing, yeah, about about having to have some light in your life. Um, I would like to see him do more, but I would like to see the Park Chan Wook who does, and this is this is maybe a criticism of some of his other films, is that he doesn't always dig deep into his characters or things can be quite one-dimensional they always look beautiful they're always well shot well filmed the, the everything's so wonderfully constructed um plot wise everything kind of makes sense as the, although this film's a little flabby 
you know, and there's bits that your eye might want to cut out. It, it's all beautifully constructed, and there's not too much extra fat on this. This is probably the worst film that I've seen for that. I think he would do a really interesting horror if it was. I mean, I guess Old Boy's a bit horrible and horror related, and you know, certainly where it goes, and Lady Vengeance the same. Stoker definitely is a got a gothic a gothic thing going on. So I think he could do a brilliant ghost story, for example. Or um, a more Western style um, sort of slasher sort of film, maybe, but with immense style. Nice. Uh, we obviously threw it out to uh, throw out to the community. If you haven't joined us already in the community, please do We're on Facebook and Twitter. Um, we uh, threw it out. We got one feedback uh, from it, and that was from David Brook, who's over on Blueprint Review, and uh, also does uh, reviews for our movie vault as well and he basically said um, I love it I think it's one of his very 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 best films and a wonderful unique and thought provoking twist on the vampire story certainly we've got no disagreements with you for yourself there David I mean certainly when it came to award season um, the film picked up the jury prize at the Cannes Film Festival in 2009 so it added uh, more silverware to his his collection even though it wasn't sort of revered as we said low films such as like oh boy um and the handmaiden which followed which certainly got the awards uh committees very excited but where do you go from here i mean all the recommendations i have aren't actually asian films it would all be sort of western other foreign cinema and I mean, for myself, if you're looking for things to put this with, I would look at things such as like Gilmar del Toro's Kronos, which again is another take on the vampire mythos with the mechanical scarab that gants the user, the wearer, immortali- uh, immortality, but also has those vampire side, side effects as well. The other one I would look at would be George uh, George Romero's Martin. It's um, where we got a guy who thinks he's a vampire, and it you know it tackles those ideas of how do you get draw blood if you don't have fangs in his case he uses a syringe and razor blades so and uh then over to russia for noche doze or night watch it's uh did have a sequel as well uh day watch both uh, based on the very popular series of books uh which um are worth uh, checking out as well but uh definitely those would be my sort of recommendations even though they aren't asian cinema if you're looking for more creative spins on like the vampire mythos then those are the places to look for myself but i mean did you have any sort of further watching be it asian or western or whatever really so i went a slightly different route because it's funny enough like you um and we've spoken about it a lot you know the, 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 there are other like you i struggled a bit so i went I went down just other things to watch with the main players involved, maybe not um, not necessarily to do with vampires or horror. Although yeah. you you made a you know I've already spoken about it, but the the link you gave with um, Let Me In, a Swedish film, um, I think holds doing a similar story but in a completely different way. Um, and you can go and check out episode four of the Guelo Ramblings World Tour to hear more about that. <laughs> that and the American Remaker are some of my favourite films. Um, again, another film you've spoken about is Stoker, which is Park Chan-wook's film he made after Thirst. He got his um, his Hollywood break, um, which I think in the realms of uh, the Korean 
directors coming over to America and making a film within the... I call it the Hollywood system. I'm not quite yeah. sure it was quite as Hollywoody as it could have been. Um, I think it's the most successful when you compare it to um, uh, Bong's film, um, the one with the Alfred uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger film, which was all right. But no, I mean it's a it's a classic gothic horror. Um, with yeah. with some 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 sequences in that remind me of this um, I don't think anything's ever looked better for having that extra ten times the money to work with although it was only twelve million quid so it's about the same as his normal um, uh, normal Korean budget but you know with a more well known car shall we say um, I think that's highly recommended but obviously comes off first because it's the film he made afterwards so I wonder if it was still in his right mode um, neither of them would be my favourite Park Chan-wook movies but I think this one follows on um, Song Kang-ho um, is one of my favourite actors of all time he has got a film CV as long as my arm I could talk about any one of a number of films. I think, though, probably I'll talk. I'll recommend a film which we are going to cover fairly soon. I suspect, which is Memories of Murder, which is uh, sort of a drama. I think I may have even recommended it before, off the back of um, another film we watched. Possibly what I recommend off the back of The Wailing. Um, but he, he's a country detective, part of a, a group that um, get involved in a, a sort of dramatic retelling of, of South Korea's first. Serial killer, um, but you'll show you what a great actor he is. And then uh, uh, Kim Ok Bin, I've actually really loved pretty much every film she's done. But if you wanted to see what I'm talking about when you see how different she is, um, I would suggest a kind of mockumentary film by E. J. Yong um, called Actresses. Um, Actresses is this fantastic sort of fake documentary which brings six very famous Korean actresses, including um, Yoon Ye Jung, who's the one that always plays the matriarch figure in all these films, um, apart from the one we just watched, who I've actually met, and she's just like that in real life. Um, and then people like Kim Min Hee and uh, Go Hyung Jun, and also Kim Ok Bim. And they kind of play stylized versions of themselves, waiting to be. They're sort of talking about their careers amongst each other, and there's, the hyper real versions of themselves. But they sort of, they form little cliques. They're very bitchy to each other. Um, there's not really a story going on, but you know, it's just brilliant to see these actresses bouncing off each other, and there will be faces you recognise. Kim Ok Bin was very young when she made this. In fact, I think it's the film she made after. Um, yeah, the film. This is a film she made after Thirst. So on the back of her winning all these awards for Thirst, she's like the new girl in town. But you will see she is quite different as a person, even this hyper real version of her to that. So yeah, definitely try actresses out. It's a completely different genre of film, but I think it really plays into the character of Teju that you saw in um, Thirst. Well, this brings us to the end of another edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. We hope you've enjoyed listening as always. If you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button where you listen to us on Podomatic or iTunes or wherever good podcasts can be found. 
You can also find our complete archive over on thatmomentin.com where we are proud members of the podcast network. Um, you can also check out our own archive, which is uh, Asian Cinema Film Club wordpress.com as well as on there we've got the mixtape we've got reviews uh we've got the transcripts for the dark side of asian cinema we've got uh everything so definitely go and check uh check us out in both places there and uh you know let us know what you think over the show leave us some feedback um any reviews that you leave us be they good or bad or help raise the profile of the show and uh allows more people to discover it like you good people and you know, if you've got friends who are looking for podcast recommendations, recommend us. We uh, always love to expand the the audience out there and, you know, expose more people to these uh, films that we obviously enjoy talking about so much. Um, but as of our next episode, we are going on a slightly more sleazy tangent as we're talking about a film which is not just cops versus triads. It's not just... Riki Takeuchi versus uh, Sho Akira. It's not just a rivalry that threatens to split the whole planet in two. We're going to be talking about the grand opus of Takashi Miike's outlaw period that is Dead or Alive from 1999. Um, Yay, Takashi Miike films. (laughs) This film, if you're not um, aware of it already, contains one of the most explicit and jaw-dropping openings of any of the Miike movies. It's the first in a trilogy. Each film very much sort of its own standalone thing, but all linking together with um, Rike Takashi and Sho Akoa basically playing different characters as they battle each other through time and space. But uh, this first one is a... I often describe it as being the Japanese version of Heat, as we've got these two awesome actors finally playing off each other, and you know it's cops versus triads, and I'm very excited to to talk about this one because this is probably one of my first BK movies I got into, uh, along with Audition, and it's still one of my favourites, especially of the Outlaw period, which is at times can be a little hard to stomach, and uh, this one I think walks that fine line between sort of his more later sort of more artsy periods and at the same time having that real raw edge to it so um, we'll be obviously talking about that on the next episode but before we go Stephen is there anything you want to promote so other than um, the Guero Ramblings World Tour <laughs> um, <laughs> also I guess um should also advertise um, easternkicks.com I have been very remiss recently in writing reviews but Everyone could be very excited because I'm just about to write a review which should get up there very soon. Um, so I'll be writing again. I have written the grand total of one review in 2019 and I need to sort that out. Um, podcasting is great, but um, I need to get back typing again. So I'm looking forward to doing that. So yeah, so please check out my podcast. Check out all Elwood's other podcasts as well. He's got several hundred of them. Um, but please, busy. but please, please, you know, keep checking easternkicks.com um, for for news and reviews. Um, even if even if I'm not fully operating at a hundred percent, there's plenty of good stuff there. Yeah. Um, as coming up on the thatmountain.com uh, podcast network, over on Cinema Recall, Vern is looking at Brightburn as well as comparing Child's Play, the original version, against the new Mark Hamill led 
uh, remake. Over on Cinema Recap, uh, they're looking at Ad Astra, Doctor Sleep, as well as all the new releases that are coming out, including Dark Phoenix. And over on Game Warp, they've got the complete rundown of the E3 2019 conference. So um, all the major conferences from Ubisoft through to the PC Gaming Show is all covered in their rundown, which you can uh, check out over on thatmountain.com. Uh, but thank you as always to everyone for listening and thank you to my co-host Stephen thank you for having me Elwood as ever and we'll be back next time discussing Takashi Mise's Dead or Alive Good night. Kino